Welcome to the Restart Radio Show, a very different show about gadgets on Resonance 104.4 FM. This is a different show because unlike most, we don't focus on those shiny, shiny new things for you to buy. We focus on the value in the stuff we already have. The Restart Project aims for a shift of behavior towards a more sustainable and happier relationship with electronics. Our monthly community electronics repair events that we call Restart Parties are just the beginning. My name is Janet Gunter. I'm from the Restart Project. I'm joined by Ugo Volauri, my partner in crime. Hello. And um, this episode is about musicians. We're talking about musicians, their equipment, and the musical imperative to fix and tinker. So uh, today we're joined by Ben Skidmore, who is a Restart volunteer and, and a guitar lover and a professional guitar repairman. Right, Ben? Yep. For a few cool. years. Cool. Um, and we kn- um, we're going to talk to Ben a little bit about um, his practice of repairing guitars, playing a little bit about what it what it means to be a musician and um, how that how they relate to their equipment um, and how they fix and hack and improve the things they own. And then we're going to towards the end of the show have a, f- a rather fun discussion about uh, the kill switch. So something that happened this uh, past week with some uh, Google owned equipment. Um, and then we're going to talk about bots also. So for all of you who um, would like to have a laugh about how bots are going to uh, ruin or help our lives, stay tuned. So, Ben, tell us a little bit about you're studying. You're currently studying electronic engineering. That's right. But you for I we know you basically as uh, an enthusiast of guitars, tinkering of all things. Um, well, guitar music tinkering related. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I'm a chronic DIYer. I grew up taking things apart and playing with them. So when I started playing guitar, I kind of naturally took a screwdriver to it, um, and I found a, you know a route through education. So I learned to make them, uh, and it became a job for a while. Uh, and so that's still my current income. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it ties the two together. So I like doing the electronic side. I like making things, but I can relate to the products because I play guitar. Yeah. OK. And tell us about your first guitar. I feel like your first guitar is more important than your first <laughs> mobile. It's like it's really important. It's, you you convert it to your first skateboard, right? Yeah. The, yeah. You know, those moments in life when uh, it changes everything because you gain a new perspective or a new hobby. Um, so I, I spent about nine months lusting after uh, any bass guitar I just wanted a bass guitar once I found out what they were I had to have one um, and it took you know six months of asking and then for my birthday I got money from every relative I could and I, I saved up as much as I could I went to the shop and my mum lent me the shortfall to get my first bass guitar and uh, it's one of the only guitars I ever named so she's called Jean um, and you know I could argue that some things I have bought since are better but um, I know this bass better than any other instrument and how old were you then? Uh, it was my 15th birthday. Okay. So okay. 13 years ago. Wow. And did you teach, you taught yourself how to play? Yeah, you know, as a 15-year-old, I was uh, obsessed. So I would sit on the internet and just practice and read and learn. Um, I would get in from school, take off my tie and my shoes, and I'd play bass for an hour. Then I'd take off my uniform and change, and I'd play bass again. And <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'd spend all my time for years and years doing it. Okay. And at what point did you start tinkering or kind of hacking or, you know, messing around with the instrument itself? It took a while. Um, I remember tripping over the lead once in the early days and it broke off in the socket and I cried because I was like, I've broken my pride and joy. It's going to go in the bin and that's my life over. 
Um, and it took a while before I realised, you know, there's, there's screws, there's, there's nuts, you can take a spanner or a screwdriver to it. So it was a slow process. Did somebody help you or did you find help online? What, like, what was the kind of spark? Um, the- I found a broken guitar first, so I was much less scared to take it to pieces. And so I did take it to pieces and lots of things weren't understood. And so I went to a guitar shop where there was a technician. Uh, my mum found one and took me along. And he was really helpful. He gave me a lot of advice on not just what to do there, but how to learn. Um, but he kind of cast me out into DIY, go figure it out. Um, okay. And so I started, and, and that's what led me to learning to make guitars, was how can I learn to do this? And I, I eventually found a college that teaches it, so I, I jumped into it. Okay, well, my only uh, my only um, attempt at learning music was through the, the school band. So I kind of, I went into kind of with woodwinds, and I, um, I started on the clarinet, and I, I found it too formal. And mm. actually, you know, the, the way in which... Um, you know the, the the paradigm of like getting a teacher and having lessons and and then even just like learning maintenance through that formal relationship because you know you have to learn how to maintain an instrument it never really did it for me mm. um i eventually ended up playing oboe and there i mean there's an incredible amount of maintenance it's a very like finicky mm. difficult instrument so i i get the feeling with the, in the guitar world and the kind of like maybe more popular music world there's more of a tradition of people like helping each other and encouraging them to be more diy yeah, yeah, I mean, um, it helps that um, they're less sensitive than classical uh, instruments. Like classical instruments tend to be made from, you know, a finer wood and, and in a more they're, they're more fragile, they're more sensitive to the elements. Um, but, you know, the fact that uh, an electric guitar is a production line item means you, cu- you want to customise it because it's the same as everyone else's. So a lot of people will paint their guitars, they will modify them in some way. And so, yeah, we're less scared to tinker. Um, and we quite like when we see something from one person, they might help us do it for theirs as well. Um, Ugo, did you did you ever? I mean, I know that you were you were into DJing, but did you ever play any instruments growing up? And yeah, did you ever end up fixing or hacking them? Never really had to to hack into that, but it's probably due to the fact that I was just playing um, a keyboard uh, for the longest time, and uh, the other instrument, which is is like a keyboard but that you uh, power by blowing into uh, it. What's, known as a melodica. Yes, yeah. which is kind of a disturbing instrument when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. The maintenance there is really not about fixing but it's a health and safety concern <laughs> yeah. I would say. That's what we used to play in school, in middle school as I was an early teenager I guess. Wow. But yeah, it wasn't a th- tremendously DIY instrument to play I guess but yeah and I think there's then evolving into playing tracks for other people as a very DIY (laughs) DJ actually yeah you need to get involved in a lot of other bits that are more fun a bit a bit closer to your relationship Mm. I guess with guitar but I never really tinker that way sadly so Ben, tell us when you kind of so you, you you said you got this bass guitar, you broke it, you fixed it eventually. Yeah, or? I think it was a, a real hack. Like it was a two pairs of pliers reaching into the socket and eventually pulling out the piece that had snapped off. Um, I didn't realize you could just unscrew the plate and push it out with your finger. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, and so at what point did you, were you interested in help? Did you start helping other people to fix? Like, how did you kind of transition from just a tinkerer, um, you know, home musician to uh, repairing for others? Yeah, you know, when you're, I guess at any age, but especially when you're 19, people say, what are you doing? What are you studying? And so everyone was saying, oh, you make guitars. And so people would say, oh, I've got this old guitar in my attic or my son's got one, he's broken. And, and so there were lots of opportunities with no pressure with yeah. no money exchange just to try and, and figure stuff out and, and learn and help people so I guess word got around because uh, we used to talk about it and a lot of people have something they te- people tend to have a guitar knocking around the house somewhere yeah that's true it's a, it's a bit like the old mobile or, or the old broken yeah. electronics people mm-hmm. do yeah <laughs> Um, we noticed that people bring a lot of uh, keyboards to restart parties. Mm. Um, so we've had a, the odd drum machine amp. Um, today we were hoping to have a musician here who, um, who whose amp we helped uh, fix or find a workaround for. Um, yeah, and uh, so so so, at what point did you go from helping friends and family, kind of like doing favors, to you found a, a work in a guitar shop? You said, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I guess um, around my third year of the college course, uh, I was recommended by my teacher to a, a local business who needed like a holiday guy mm-hmm. and uh, you know I went along for an interview and we saw eye to eye on how things work and attitudes to doing good work for people um, and so I just kind of got thrown in at the deep end because I was covering for someone on emergency holiday cover and uh, it was just like here's how we do it you have to do it to this time it costs this much and to this standard and what was great about that particular business was they had a really technical attitude so it was like we have tables of measurements and specifications and all the tools laid out. So we want you to do this the same every time. And that taught me a level of precision I hadn't had. You know, I realised actually you think musical instruments are some kind of very analogue, spiritual thing that just work beautifully. But, you know, um, if you have a ruler and a pair of calipers, you can make everything work the same. Yeah. So tell us about what kind of repairs you end up doing for people. I mean, I think, as you'd mentioned, like people are quite attached to their instruments. So mm. um, I, I, I imagine it's it's different than working, for example, in an electronics repair shop. I mean, I, this is probably one of the most kind of emotion, the highest emotional mm. attachment people have to their instruments. So how do you end up helping them? Yeah, a really common pattern is, you know, people bring you something and it might be very valuable or very cheap. Uh, in very good condition or very damaged and they're going to say this is my most important guitar I love it and I need you to do X um, so that's there's some consideration involved you have to kind of uh, empathise and treat every instrument the same which is to do your best um, so we you know a lot of it is uh, maintenance and so you're adjusting things much like you'd have a service on a car um, but you know people will bring you a guitar that may be worth a few hundred pounds that's been smashed into pieces and say, I want you to put it back together. And you wow. say, yeah, and, and it's like you, you could actually buy the new guitar for cheaper. They say, but this is the one I've had since I was a teenager. So there's an element of the, um, yeah, the, the empathy and the kind of, um, it's just because it looks like that other one you did last week, it doesn't mean it's the same. Uh, and, and also everyone plays their guitar differently. Yeah. So you also have to realise that um, it's always customised, even if it's just in a little adjustment. Yeah. So, what, what kind of things do you see that, that you know? How do how do guitars and bass guitars tend to break? Uh, I mean, aside from people smashing them up, <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot of electronics problems. Um, so, while the electronics are quite basic, it it, it helps to really know your stuff uh, because you know a lot. Uh, the socket, for instance, as I mentioned, where you plug the cable in. Uh, nine times out of ten, if someone thinks their guitar is broken, it really just means that socket's broken. Um, and we'll sometimes have arguments about it. The common one is just, uh, you know, have you checked your lead yet, sir? 
Uh, yeah, of course I have. Okay, I'm just going to check my lead. It turns out your lead is broken. That happens uh, with a lot of electronics, doesn't it, Hugo? Yeah, yeah all of the time. <laughs> and you don't want to, I guess, make it sound like you're smart and they aren't. Yeah, there's a, there's a way to phrase it that says, I'm not patronizing you. I've just seen this a hundred times before <laughs> and I know my trade, um, which is usually along the lines of saying it like that. You know, this, this yeah. happens 10 times a day. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. don't worry, it's okay. It's human. <laughs> and actually you should be happy because that means the repair will be very cheap. Mm. And you told us that you also did, you do some, you end up doing some cosmetic repairs to instruments, which we found kind of interesting. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean um, traditionally, you know, when instruments evolved, at some point we started using the same paint we used to use on cars. And that paint has evolved as well to become more high tech. And so all of the modern stuff's very brittle. And as, as you might know, with furniture, with anything really that's painted it tends to chip and crack in quite an ugly way and then it gets worse and it flakes off so you know that's something that's good to be able to repair um on the fly uh so we find ourselves doing that a lot when it comes in with other repairs you know i dropped my guitar and this piece broke off please can you put it back on and fix the paint so it's interesting how instruments have the electronic side the structural and the wood side and then the artistic side that's more about creativity and then also cosmetic side you know people want them to look good too Yeah, although people probably have different notions of what looks good and um and like how kind of beat up and banged up they can look. And I remember you saying that um, gaffer tape was one of your 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 biggest you know tools, yeah. as it were. If you're a guitarist and you play live, you should probably have gaffer tape in your bag. Um, I've seen acoustic guitars that are actually falling apart held together with gaffer. <laughs> and the wow. player is happy. Wow. <laughs> wow. Well, um, there's a sad story in my family. My dad had this beautiful um, uh, acoustic, uh, Brazilian acoustic guitar from the late 60s. And um, yeah, if you don't uh, maintain them, they um, warp and bend mm. and break. I think it was maybe tuned in a way that really put strain on the neck and it was just left for years. And some of that stuff is... Is terminal and and there's nothing in a sense nothing worse than that. I, like you were mm. saying, people bring you a smashed up instrument and have you remake it because there is something so like irreplaceable about that instrument and that feeling. Yeah, it, it may have come from a production line, but once you take it home, it's it's yours. You might name it. You might it develops a character and a personality. Yeah. Um, and we are listening to Resonance 104.4 FM. This is Restart Radio. Um, another thing we were talking uh, with uh, some musicians or sound designers yesterday who work near us called Cassini Sound. And um, they had, well, they had a couple of fun things to show. They had one keyboard, which they really valued, which needs some help. So we might, we might see if we can send somebody to help. But they also showed us a little, um, I guess it was like a drum machine. Drum machine. Yeah, that. That was they, they considered kind of, you know, they, they they didn't really value it that much. They thought it was kind of crappy, and they and, and apparently the internet thought so as well. But there was one little setting on it that they really enjoyed. Yeah, there is one uh, knob mm -hmm. that works really really nicely, and they'd like to kind of reuse that mm -hmm. and uh, like pass sound through it. Basically, yeah. hack a way to connect it to other instruments that they had. And I think a lot of I mean a lot of electronic music also requires a lot of ingenuity and hacking and. Um, so it's not just necessarily fixing. It's kind of a different relationship with... Adapting. With equipment. Yeah. You know, these, these skills cross over, you know, knowing how to repaint a guitar can translate into knowing how to paint a cool design on your guitar to make it unique. Uh, uh, or knowing how to repair the electronics means you could customize your own guitar. So there's a massive crossover with these practical skills. Yeah. Yeah, that's really... I think, and I think 
I, I get the feeling that the creative impulse that goes into making music is much easier also to transfer, you know, into actually adapting the things that, that, that you use to make music. Um, and I guess if you're after a specific sound that you don't mm-hmm. have access to apart from your own uh, idea Vision. of what it should look like or sound like better, uh, you know, you probably have a, a, a more of a motivation to go out and find how you could recreate that. You know, there's people doing so with um, using game controllers so that they can control certain sources of audio more effectively or yeah. whether it's cosmetic or actually creative uh, impulse, we don't know. But there's that and then there's people reprogramming toys. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. been quite common or old uh, video games. So but at times it really does work in creating a new layer of sound. One so. of our favorite DJs is Batida, who's based in Lisbon. He has this uh, the most amazing like little sound machine that he's made. It's like an old jerry can. Yeah. I mean that, and I like the aesthetic of it. Um, and it's just like custom. So I think and it's it's a trademark that he brings with him. It's pretty cool. Um, I was just thinking about the con- the implications for music education because mm. you know I was just saying about how it wasn't really for me the way in which music was taught in a formal sense, and um, maybe increasingly you know now that it's in fact like making is in fashion and coding and things, bringing those into schools. I think it would be it's a real challenge to music educators also to think about like how we can bring different creative forms of music making and break out of I think some of the 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 paradigms of like mm. band of formal music making one-on-one teaching yeah and how technology actually can play an empowering role in this case and it's not just yeah. coding for the sake of coding but it's actually opening up new creativity opportunities yeah. in music making so Why not? something you've mentioned is uh basically having an idea and wanting to make that sound and that's so common as a technician that people come to you and say you know i've got this idea in my head how do i achieve it and you know with kids that's probably the secret to, to creativity is don't give them all the same instrument ask them what noise they want to make yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and apps are really cool for that. I mean, there's, I don't know, I, I mean, I'm not a big tablet person, um, but when you, when you, when you set a kid down in front of one of these new, like, music apps, it's pretty amazing mm-hmm. what, 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 I mean, um, we can share some of our favorites online, but there's just a couple that are really mind blowing. Um, not just cats can use tablets. <laughs> <laughs> Um, you're, oh, you're listening to Restart Radio on Resonance FM, and we're going to talk now about some fun t- uh, and rather potentially alarming tech stories from the last week. So, Ugo, yes. take it over. So, uh, the first news uh, is actually about a device um, called the Revolve Smart Home Hub, which is one of those automation uh, devices that can help you or could help you more Uh, properly, uh, control heating or lights and other things in your home. Um, This company had made one of the original versions of this type of devices and uh, which didn't do very well commercially. And at one point, the company did get uh, bought out by Nest, which 
also did get bought out by Google. <laughs> it's like a Matryoshka doll. Yes, it is. And uh, basically, the, the news is that uh, it's a news from February that originally didn't get much traction. But now that the time uh, is coming, um, this device will be completely shut down as of the 15th of May. And what does this mean? It means that actually that device relies on cloud servers for it to function, even though it might just be controlling a light going on and off. So in it doesn't have home. a brain, basically. It doesn't have a brain at all. And as a result of that, it means that as of the 15th of May, anyone who had bought that device, which used to cost $300, uh, will have nothing more than a brick in their home. And if they want that kind of service again, they need to buy another product and hopefully find one that would be compatible in terms of protocols, which there's a few. But the point this story raises is, so what happens when a so-called smart device um, is deemed no longer worth it by the original manufacturer, which is not making enough money off it and decides we're not going to um, allocate the funds needed to continue supporting the cloud storage in this case. Ben, what did you make of this? Uh, when I first read about it, I thought, you know, as a technician, I can understand uh, why other, other end, end consumers would be upset because they thought they bought into something and they were told they can't have it. But I also thought I wouldn't have bought that because I'm very wary of anything externally dependent. I still don't really trust streaming video because I kind of go, I don't have it. It's not, you know, what if it's interrupted? And, but that's not, you know, that's from my perspective. And I empathize that uh, so many people who are consumers and want to spend money on a product to make their life easier or more enjoyable have had it taken away. Um, and it, I don't see... Google or Nest offering any solutions like reprogramming these devices? No, not at all. And in fact, this story became popular after um, someone called Arlo Gilbert wrote a big blog post uh, ranting <laughs> about what happened and the fact that this device is turning into nothing more useful than an empty box of hummus <laughs> because it has the same shape as a hummus <laughs> box. And you know, the point was, it's not that I can't buy another one, but the point is my worry about what's next. Mm. What is Google, or in this case, Alphabet, which is the current owner of both the Nest, the Google and the Revolve brand, uh, what will they do with it, uh, with, with the next uh, Nexus device? What will happen when uh, the next uh, Android device is deemed uh, no longer worth Maintaining, And in fact, these things already do happen a lot. We've seen DVD players, we've seen uh, TVs that had connected apps that all mm. of a sudden no longer work and people are left behind. But in this case, what's particularly worrying is that it's a device differently from a TV that could still be used to play whatever you connect to it. This is completely useless as a result. And some yeah. people don't really realize that they bought something that would not work without the service power in it be behind the mm. scenes. There were a couple of really great comments on our Facebook page about this story. Um, one of them was um, from uh, Terry Jones, who says, when I buy these types of product, I regard it as buying a service for a couple of years with disposable hardware thrown in. If it runs longer than that, then all the better. 
<laughs> and and he, he kind of asks, what is the sustainable business model with all of this? Um, and then one of our restarters, uh, Andrew, commented, when we have fridges and freezers linked to the smart electricity supply demand framework, will your freezer permanently switch off when the manufacturer or cloud feature provider decide it's too old to be worth running the service anymore? Yeah, I mean, it, it really raises the bar for what should we have as a locally owned product or what are we buying as a service? But if you're buying something as a service, like going back to our conversations on the circular economy, that product should be taken care of by the original manufacturer. So you should send it back. It's true. And it should be reused or disassembled and uh, taken care of in a environmentally friendly well, way. In maybe this case, the people who own these can send them back to Google and Google can put hummus in them. <laughs> yeah, and, perhaps. And you know, market them. Well, but seriously, what, what the question is, okay, if you decide not to support a product any longer directly, could you at least make the original software behind it as open source and allow other people to make use of it independently? Yeah, and I think there may be even a case for regulation gasp in this area like i mean i think that mm -hmm. this is an area where you know yeah there, there's no reason why if if this is deemed end of life that a manufacturer couldn't open up some of the yeah. code behind it although i'm sure they would say industry secret it's being used in the next thing it's going to hurt our competition and actually um on top of that there's also maybe a piece of advice to give to our listeners that if you're buying something that's designed to be a cloud smart hub uh, technology, maybe you should check whether what you're about to buy would work in case your internet goes down or in case the cloud service behind it disappears. I mean, the little stupid example is I have a little timer controlling a light going on and off the house and provided that electricity is there, I don't need any internet connectivity for it to be programmed. It's just a little knob that controls it. Obviously, there's advantages to having uh, internet-based services, but what are the drawbacks? Let's keep it in mind. Okay, and moving on from clouds to bots, um, we, we, there's a, a, well, there was an interesting story. This is a couple weeks back now. The, the infamous Microsoft bot um, that Microsoft s set into Twitter. And, um, well, things got a little bit crazy when the famous, uh, I guess, hacker bulletin board 4chan decided that they were going to train the bot into being a horrible human human being, in quotes. Like, train the bot into being the worst possible political... Uh, statement. So the bot started tweeting super uh, totalitarian, right-wing, racist things after being basically being uh, taught by, a, by 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 an army of hackers who wanted to prove the point, which is that bots are not neutral. That you know we don't just set neutral robots into the world. Machine learning is not a neutral exercise. So Ugo, tell us what happened in your email inbox this week. Well, it was really. Revolutionary. I was contacted by someone who would like to meet with me, and uh, I was told that someone called Amy would uh, be in charge of his calendar. And uh, then there was a little note. Please note, Amy is a robot, but she knows very well how to handle my calendar needs. So a few hours later, I get an email from Amy suggesting three different timings for a meeting. 
and none of them actually suited me, but I was a little bit uncomfortable with responding to Amy, and so I didn't. And this morning I got a new email with a different suggestion and including a specific place where to meet. So it's a little well, bit strange. Okay. Uh, where I'm sitting, it's strange that Amy is gendered, that uh, that the personal assistant robot has to be a woman, first of all. Fair enough. But <laughs> even if it was a man or a whatever gender you like, I would still be a bit disturbed because here it's not like the, the fact that the bot is giving me some information actually adds up. Like if I could see the calendar of that person and we've seen example um, of services like that where you can book someone's spaces based on their availability. Yeah, it's a very strange mediated, Why strange do I experience. need a robot to take yeah. care of that? On the website of the company which is called x.ia um, you know, there's people claiming that it saved 10 hours a week of their life fixing appointments and calendar events. I don't know. Maybe this will become the norm in a few years time but we remain a little bit skeptical. Yeah, I mean, for me, that story was less the Spike Jones film Her and more that film Ex Machina. I don't know if anybody saw that <laughs> film, but is we bots are human creations. Yes. We need to be quite clear about what we're creating, I think, is the main takeaway there. And I'm also thinking about Amy and her discussions with her boss in the background, because they must email each other or something. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you've been listening to Restart Radio. Um, we have a restart party tomorrow evening in at Kentish Town Community Centre. And at 6 p.m. till 9 p.m. And on Friday, we have an event that we are part of called Digital Futures Dreaming Zero Waste at the VNA. Uh, free tickets, but you need to book on Eventbrite. Uh, and you find a link on our website from 4.30 p.m., including a conversation on repair with repairs in Nairobi, followed by a restart party. And you can find everything on our website, the restartproject.org, or find us on Twitter or Facebook. Thanks, Ben, for joining us. Thanks. Okay, and we'll see everybody or talk to you next week. Bye.